time in boxing, the aim is to uh, render your opponent unconscious as quick as you possibly can. In rugby, when you go for a tackle, do you want to hurt the person? Yeah, I want to hurt them. I want to leave my mark. Mediocrity of, of a role never sat well. I wanted to do the role well, and, and that meant big impact. Welcome to another episode of Getting Back Up with me, Anthony Agogo. And this is the bit where I normally say I talk to amazing people with wonderful stories, people that have achieved great things in both their lives and careers, but only after suffering massive setback and adversity. And I've been thinking today's guest, I mean, I don't know if I talk to amazing people or normal people that have done amazing things. Because today's guest, he done everything, pretty much everything in his career, I think is amazing. But in his words, he's had a very normal life, very normal upbringing, normal family, and he did amazing things rather than the fact that he is amazing. Today's guest is none other than Brian O'Driscoll, the rugby icon, the legend, the Irish legend, the British and Irish Lions legend, Brian O'Driscoll. What a lovely, lovely man. You're going to love this podcast. I love the scene of him and talking to him. I've spoke to him for hours. Brian was one of the true greats of the game. He achieved pretty much everything there was to achieve as a rugby player. The interesting thing about Brian and Brian's career for me was that he didn't excel early on. He actually got cut from his school team. He got cut from a school team and he went on to have the amazing career they had. In his own words, he said, we all get to our talent level at different ages. And for me, it's really inspiring to hear that Brian, he struggled early on. He didn't excel. Brian's one of the few players that sits above legendary status. There's a great quote from a, an Irish commentator. He said, They called him God, but I reckon he's a better player than that. Wow. Heldard is one of the greatest centres to ever play the game. Here are some of his stats. The leading Irish try scorer of all time, a Six Nations leading try scorer. At the time of his retirement, he was the most capped player in rugby union history. He's still to this day the most capped back in rugby history, the highest scoring centre in international rugby history, only the third player, this is an amazing one, only the third player in 125 years to play four Lion Tours. Two times Six Nations winner, including the Grand Slam 2009, three-time European Cup winner, and 2010 to 2020 team of the decade he was in. Brian, he talks about all that stuff, the ups, the downs, the lows, the highs. He talks about getting cut from a school team. He talks about struggling to find his way in rugby. When Brian exploded on the world scene, 18, 20 years old, boy, did he explode. He talks about becoming a star the day he went to the Stade de France in Ireland, beat France for the first time in 28 years at the Stade de France. He scored three tries. He came back a hero to the Irish people. Now, if you know anything about Brian O'Driscoll, there's two questions that have followed him throughout his entire career. There's the spear tackle heard around the world and Brian getting dropped. Well, would have been his last game on a Lions tour. Brian goes into detail about two massive adversities and setbacks. He talks about how it affected him then and now. What I really was encouraged by talking to Brian about things outside of rugby. Brian talks about suicide. Suicide is the number one killer for men under the age of 50 
in Britain and Ireland, and I think that is a shocking and horrific stat. Brian talks about his own experiences with one of his very good friends took his own life. And we talk about mental health, especially within men. We talk about athletes having to retire, like I did, like he did, and the struggles around that. I really think you're gonna love this conversation. He's a great, great man. And um, so yeah, so without further ado, get ready for it, listen to it, learn from it, and let's get stuck in. Brian, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for jumping on today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Just before you logged on, I gave you a wonderful introduction. Wonderful. Okay. And I, I know you're a very modest man. I didn't want to embarrass you by saying all your all your achievements. However, wait, I kind of want to embarrass you. <laughs> it's like, you're telling me your achievements are embarrassingly good. So if you don't mind, I want to list just a few things you've done in your in your career before we start. <laughs> Bring me down to so, earth before we actually get going. <laughs> so, uh, leading Ireland try scorer of all time, Six Nations leading try scorer, at the time of your retirement, the most capped play in rugby union history, still the most capped back in history, highest scoring centre in international rugby, only the third play in 125 years to play four tours of the Lions. Well, three-time European Cup winner, 2010 to 2020 team of the decade. I've, I mean, I've researched you loads these last few days. And anybody who knows their soul about rugby, any expert or former player, puts you as one, two or three top centre of all time. Um, you're wildly regarded as one of the greatest players to ever play the game and regarded as one of, one of if not the best player from the Northern Hemisphere to play the game. And possibly, most, most importantly, you're the husband to the stunning and talented, beautiful uh, actress, wife of yours, Amy Huberman, and the father of three wonderful kids. Mate, I do not feel worthy of talking to you today. I don't feel worthy. <laughs> what hope is there for the rest of us? I actually thought you were going to completely take the piss out of me and, and, and bring me down with some of my not-so-wonderful moments. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one that always springs to mind that I'm mortified with <laughs> Is I was going out with a girl in two thousand and four, and she was on the she was on the panel for Ireland's sexiest man, and and I actually beat Colin Farrell to Ireland's sexiest man in two thousand and four. So I thought actually with all of those accolades, I was like, I'm going to soften I'm going to soften his cough here now and go, how on God's earth did you agree to that? But <laughs> it was of its time. I was young and immature, and <laughs> anyway, and. And sexy. No, Let's not the be thing around is, the bush. The, the thing is, like, come on, I, I look in the mirror too, you know? I, I, can, I can see what everyone else sees. So, like, you know, nepotism at its very best uh, in, in, uh, <laughs> in, in, that, in that particular poll. But, yeah, it's, it's one that I kind of try, I try as much as possible and take the piss before someone takes the piss out of me with it. No, not, not at all, mate, not at all. I think you were, um, everything I've said... I've meant wholeheartedly. You are literally a, a, a legend. The word legend gets thrown around way too much in sport. You are every inch legend, mate. And I, I, I really mean that. So you grew up just outside Dublin, correct? Yeah, like a suburb, right? Out, like not far from the city centre, but on, um, yeah, on the, on the coastline of Dublin. So like four or five kilometres out of town, suburbia, but very close to the centre of, of kind of everything. And both your parents were doctors? Yeah. GPs so in the same practice. 
Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, they were, they were. Um, the, the brains didn't rub off on their offspring quite like they um, they had themselves. Well, certainly not their son, maybe their daughters. But <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't speak for my siblings like that and generalize the three of us in the same. But um, <laughs> but we, yeah, we had a great upbringing. You know, we we're lucky. My parents had, the, had a practice together in in Clontarf, um, you know, a mile from where we grew up. And, um, you know, they, yeah, they, they were in practice together. They worked together or at home together. We were, yeah, we were, and remain a pretty tight knit, um, unit, albeit, you know, we're all living in different parts of Dublin, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, I had a, I had a great upbringing. What was it like growing up in the, in the household, like, you know, both parents, you've got two sisters, two sisters, yeah, two sisters. What was it like growing up? The only boy in the loving household, it sounds like. Yeah. Very normal. Um, yeah, we. Yeah, obviously we were, you know, pretty comfortable. I, I think people forget the, the 80s for everybody was a challenging time. You know, my dad inherited his um, medical practice from his father. You know, so remember interest rates are kind of 20%. So even for doctors back then, you know, I don't remember. We, it was never, you know, a fancy uh, existence that we lived. But Great memories, the best memories thinking back to, you know, campsite holidays in France and getting the ferry across and spending a couple of weeks, you know, in, you know, driving to different parts of the country in France and then, you know, forging these little mini relationships with people that you were never going to meet again for three or four days and um, collecting stickers and, you know, learning to windsurf and do kind of really cool campsite stuff. So, um, yeah, I th so when I think about my family and I think about good times spent together, I think that's probably a big residing memory of, um, yeah, a bit like the quality time that you, you kind of hope that you pass on to your own kids. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Ogogo Fitness. Ogogo Fitness is my brand new fitness app I'll be launching really, really soon. I've created this app because I truly want to help people. I believe everybody should have the right to exercise and be fit and be healthy. I've brought this to the world to promote physical health and mental health. I've designed 60 preset seven minute workouts ranging in difficulty from round one, which is pretty easy to round 12, which is really, really challenging. As well as that, I've got my personal workout builder. I've created 50 different exercises and you have the choice to create your own playlist from the 50 different workouts which gives you an option of over 80 million combinations of workouts 80 million so from your gogo -Go fitness app you can literally choose for millions and millions and millions of workouts personalized for you and what you're training for so head over to agogofitness.com register your interest and be the first to know when a go go fitness is launching. You went to Blackwell College, and that's where the rugby obsession came from. Well, my dad, my dad played twice for Ireland in 1970 in uncapped games against Argentina, which, understandably, is a bit of a bowl of contention with with him. Where now you play against Argentina, you know you you get capped. You know, there's, it was a full strength Irish team that toured down to Argentina then, and he was selected, but yet. There's been no cap forthcoming, um, so I suppose, in many ways, he lived his rugby career that never properly took off vicariously through me, um, and really enjoyed all of the, the the kind of the highs and, and lows, I guess, with um, with with supporting Ireland over my career. Um, 
But yeah, BlackRock was the catalyst for that. I, I tried to get into a couple of other schools, um, particularly one one school closer to home, but but you know, didn't get in the entrance exam a couple of times. And um, and so BlackRock College um, accepted me as a 12-year-old, and I'd never played rugby at that point. It was all football and, and Gaelic football, so it was new to me, and my and, I was, and everyone in the school played it. It was it was kind of an obsession um, in the school, probably more so than it is now, but it was very much, it was a rugby focused school. And so, yeah, the, an immediate way of making friends was was about playing rugby. And, and, you know, pretty quickly, I was of a reasonable standard without really excelling in the early years. Because your dad played rugby, um, was, was he was he pushy at all? He said he was living like vicariously through you. Was he pushy? Was he supportive? Was like a... a ba- a nice he balance. was supportive. Yeah, he was supportive. Okay. Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, one thing. He was a very, very loud father on the touchlines, and too <laughs> embarrassingly too, too loud. loud. <laughs> too loud. Yeah, I was like, Dad, can you not be the second loudest, Dad? Whenever about you know being vocal, <laughs> just be the second loudest. So yeah, I used to get the Mickey taken out of me, but it was always enthusiastic. It was never. It was never negativity, and he shared it around. It wasn't only for me um it was about you know the teams that we were involved in different individuals um but yeah I, I suppose one thing i am mindful now with my own is is maybe not to be that guy because i know it's embarrassing you know for young kids that are trying to you know forge friendships and find out who they are so and he did he actually did a bit of refereeing in the early years because he you know, played rugby to a high standard so you know it was weird calling you know, forgetting that he was your dad and calling him sir on the pitch and then a bad decision goes against you. It's like, oh, dad. I mean, I mean, oh, sir, come on. It's a terrible decision. And all the opposition turned around and go, it's your dad? <laughs> so, like, that, that sort of stuff. But it was, you know, it was great. He, he was so enthusiastic about getting involved and, you know, he, he was a busy man. He was a, he was a doctor, but finding time, you know, on Wednesdays or on Saturdays for going playing golf instead of, you know, and coming and, and watching games and doing the refereeing thing and, and yeah, being a, a, a great a support there. On that one, uh, going back to the referee thing, so growing up, and is this still, as in, in senior rugby as well, you call the referee sir? Is it, there's... Yeah, I think a lot of the time you would call it sir, yeah. Because, like, you know, what we differ, our sports, I think what I love about, what I love about rugby um, and actually the whole thing, this, this podcast is called Getting Back Up because I think in, in, in rugby and in, in boxing, in the sports that we chose and in life, the secret of being successful is just not giving up. And we chose sports where we literally get knocked down over and over again. And I think in, in our sports and in life, it's about what we do when we find ourselves on the canvas or on the pitch, lying there, winded, hurt, Saw is how we found how we find that resolve to get back up and to carry on again, like knowing you're going to get knocked down again. I think that's the secret to success. Just keep going and keep going and keep going so you can't go anymore. Yeah, I think like that. Jesus, nothing like resilience being built when you when you have that option of you know of staying lying down, and it's an easier option than getting back up and and you know putting another foot in front of you and not showing any weakness and um and you know not showing any um any kind of any backward step um and and listen you know i suppose there's good and bad to that you know i think i was then gonna say you said they're not showing weakness we're gonna come on to that later because they want to talk about something later the documentary that, that, that you made which is expertly done by the way 
really beautiful film you made. Um, that not showing weakness, I'm going to come on to that a bit later because that's the thing about sport and life. Sometimes they go in parallel and sometimes they go they go like this. But um, So you mentioned about being... So you, you you got pretty good pretty quick and I think that was kind of... Um, a modest way of saying you were really good really quick not really well i wasn't i wasn't picked for schools teams you know the whole time at 15 16 17 i was you know on and off the team dropped for the for the big cup you know um at the you know in the second half of the season would have been my second last year in school so i would have had a, another year to go and i think my my love for rugby kind of came back when i when i went back to my home club clontar from played under 16s with them and we went on our first tour together and we and he was all, i was playing with all my mates from home and i think that's where it rekindled my love for it i'd fallen out of it maybe by lack of selection and just being the fun being taken out of it a little bit at, at under 15 which is a really kind of high level in school you know you could have 3 4 5000 people at some of these cup matches you know, so there is a there's a big enough pressure on them, and I and I wasn't selected on the on the bench on in and out of the team, and I just was like, I don't know if still there was at a bit of a crossroads. Is rugby for me? And I think the, the under 16s with my with my local team was the catalyst to get back into it, and then and then I grew, and I was very small comparatively to everyone else. You know, 14, 15, 16, and then 17. I had a big growth spurt, and and I think. You know, what happened from 18 to 20 was unbelievably quick. It really was. I played, you know, from for I was a starter and one of the probably main players for, for my school team. I played for, um, you know, my provincial team in Leinster. I played Irish schools. And, and I think with that just came a lot more confidence. But I wasn't. It wasn't, I wasn't destined for, you know, for, for any form of stardom as a schoolboy. I, I was a bit of an also-ran, you know. You couldn't have necessarily picked me out of a bunch um, and got all, you know, definitely that's, there's a, there, there's a you know, future professional career or Irish rugby career in that guy for, for definitely. I don't think he could have done that under 18. Really? And so that, yeah. So that, so like the speed at which like that progression from leaving that, leaving school and, um, and then playing under 19s and, we, you know, we had a really good under-19s tournament in France. And then... Oh, you, you won the World Cup? We, yeah. And listen, I have to caveat that by saying there was no New Zealand and, and Australia in it at the time. We beat... Well, we did beat South Africa on the way. We beat Argentina. We beat uh, France, the hosts in the final. So we were a good team. Um, but I think, yeah, the springboard that that gave me from a belief point of view was huge. And then kind of out of nowhere, I was, I was... You pushed into an Irish set training session, and I managed okay in it. And then was selected for a tour as a as a just recently turned twenty year old, um, and the kind of people were like, "Who's your man?" And then all of a sudden, I play okay on tour, and you get capped. And um, you know, I remember distinctly my first cap. We got we got beaten. We got beaten forty six ten, I think it was right. And I meet my folks after the game, and who again? Sorry. It was against Australia, down in Brisbane. So they travelled down with me, and you know they were travelling around the tour. They didn't know how long this was going to last. So what to get the most out of it, and obviously I was getting that that all important that all important cap that my dad didn't get. And um, and I remember meeting them after the game, and I was you know a bit disappointed with the with the result. I played okay myself, 
and they couldn't have cared less. They were like, oh my God, you've got a cap. And I was getting these hugs and I was trying, there was like an element of like fit of kind of going, oh no, I've got to live this disappointment, but come on in, squeeze tighter, you know? So it was, um, it was such a cool, you know, unexpected, unexpectedly early surprise to get a test match. I suppose somewhere in my career, I would have, you know, in the, in the previous year, I would have thought, oh, yeah, maybe to be an international would be amazing at some stage, but for it to have happened that quickly and that, you know, you know surprisingly was um, was a real treat. So firstly, your parents sound lovely. They, they sound so sweet because they don't care if you win or lose. They'd want to be happy, don't they? And, and playing for your country and getting your first your first cap is unbelievable. That's, that's, that's such a lovely story. Um, and that's surprising, actually. I thought... I thought you, because because you were so good, as I said at the beginning, you regarded as one of the greatest to ever play the game. I'd have just presumed that like you stood out from the very beginning. So actually, really quite interesting and quite inspiring to hear that you you didn't stand out immediately. And, and listen, I know that the stories about me being not being picked at school are are told, you know, and I've been told for the last twenty five, thirty years, and um, you know, in schools around the country where, you know, we do all get to our our talent level at different times and at different junctures. And and sometimes you, know, you have to be a bit more patient um, and, and others get their opportunity, you know, before their time. It's just a matter of which they and how they take it. So announcing yourself on the world stage, Stade de France 2000, uh, Six Nations against France, you hadn't beaten them in 28 years at their place. Take me back to that day. I can see a cheeky little smile on your face, like just yeah. saying those, those dates. I played scared. I played, I played, yeah, it was, my, my, do you know what? This really changed, I think my career and my life, um, that, that, that 80 minutes. Um, like I, sorry, I probably had maybe eight or nine caps at that stage. We'd had a disastrous World Cup that i just, you know, I'd gotten capped just beforehand. We we kind of fell out and limped out of the, the World Cup. Um, and so we were still no great shakes. And, and and it was that Six Nations that new players were kind of catapulted into the team. And and one of the games was France. And and yeah, we, we nearly beat them two, two years previously. So everyone was like, oh, they would, you know, we were always trashed in France. It was really close. So it felt as though you know, there was something coming, but, um, but yeah, you play scared and you stay in the game in France. One thing I've learned, you know, in... What do you mean play scared? What, what do you mean play? You have to play, like, if, you know, to be worried, worried has a sharp, right? If you're, if you're comfortable and happy and think everything's going to be okay, human instinct and so, you know, your subconscious has you relaxed and, 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 and off, off the beat. Um, so I think, that nervous energy about you know heightened anticipation, I think, really does often serve you really well, provided you get the balance of not using it all up before the game, you know? Yeah, so I you say that, mate. I I boxed, I boxed in Beijing in two thousand and seven at the Beijing Olympic test event, and I got that nervous energy balance incorrectly, and I boxed this French lad and I boxed I was dreadful. I lost 28, 29, 26. It was a close fight. And he went on to win a bronze in Beijing the next year. Had I beaten him, I would have went to the qualifier the next month and qualified and done really well. And I let that nervous energy eat me up. And it was horrible because I, I, I was super fit, super strong, super fast. The bell went for round one and I just felt I had nothing left. 
And that was when I learned this nervous energy you talk about. There's, there's definitely a, there's a fine balance. Too much, you shoot your load too early. Not enough, you get too lackadaisical. So yeah, and hearing you had you yeah had you had you on that had you put had you put you know, played out the fight in your heads a million times. See, I, I was never one for that, you know, and I, and that there's guys that always carried that and had played it through the week. I was a real live in the moment, trained in the moment. Um, and yes, I thought about it, but I didn't obsess over it. I just tried to let my instinct take over as much as I possibly could. I, I did, of course, do all my analysis and I had myself well prepped to know what was coming at me. But it wasn't like I played it over time and again and tried to you know, work out every scenario. I just I went with the flow and tried to trust my gut a lot of the time. And and and, and people you know that I played with would have thought I was kind of nonplussed about um, about playing test matches. That I was a bit giddy and a bit you know excited and a bit relaxed about it. Of course, I had internal tension, but I my external demeanor was definitely to be relaxed you know traveling to the game on you know in a, on police escort on your bus you know i'd be chatting and having a laugh with guys and, and and enjoying the seriousness of others and trying to get a bit of fun out of them because that was what worked for me maybe it didn't work for them but but i, I needed someone to kind of bounce off to be able to just not not be obsessed about this game and play it and exhaust myself with in the thought process so I think it's such a, it is a fine balance. And if you are that way inclined to understand that you have to have coping mechanisms to be able to disconnect yourself from absorbing all of that energy. After the incident in Beijing, I began reading on the way to the, to the venue and I'd read a book and I'd read a book and I would not retain anything I read because I was, but I'll do something to distract me from what, to keep me in the moment rather than think about the fight. Because like you said, by that point, all the work is done, all the prep is done. You know, you're not going to become a better boxer in the two or three hours on the way to the venue. So, you know, I'd keep myself in the present moment by by, by reading. Um, so going back to Study Funds 2000, I want to see that smile come back. The day when Bronner Dressel became a star. Tell me about it. Yeah, listen, the first couple of tries were um, were kind of put on a plate for me. Uh, particularly the, yeah, the first one, I, I, I fell over the line. The second one, I ran a decent support line and I got a good offload. The third one was a decent try. <laughs> you are so modest, man. You are so modest. It was, I, I actually, you know, when you're asked about, about your know, games that, that you've played really well over the course of your career, it's, it's, I, I, I would say that that game was probably one of my best, but not because of the three tries. I think consistently my performance over the course of the game, making breaks, making tackles, doing, make, making good decisions was actually the most complete 80 minutes that I've, I've had. Take the tries out of it. And then, you know, but everyone only sees that. Everyone only sees the, 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 three, the three scores. Listen, don't get me wrong. They're important. And we stay in the game on the back of them. But, um, but it, that wasn't kind of the be all and end all to my feel good factor around that game. It felt as though it was, I thought if I could, that was the first real time in international rugby that I thought if I can perform like this um, on a on an international stage against a great team in their backyard, well, maybe I belong here. Maybe this I'm not. I don't. I can get rid of any imposter syndrome that I would have felt maybe in some of my early caps. And then you kind of go, okay, I I'm I'm I I can I can do this, and I'm causing them problems and. 
um, and not as much the other way around. Now, listen, you go peaks and troughs of that stuff, but it, sometimes it's it's confidence around believing, uh, having belief in your um, ability and your talent, and and confidence needs reinforcement. It comes and goes, and you need to constantly um, redefine, you know, what it is you do well, and and then when it does, then you try and ride that wave for as long as you possibly can. So you mentioned earlier, like when you, you you won the World Cup, and is that that belief for winning something made you realize, oh, you could actually do this? And I was the same. I won the Junior Olympics in America when I was fifteen, and it was on I was on a plane flying home from from Texas, and I thought, I'm Junior Olympic champion. I've got a big trophy in my bag. I could barely fit in for being the best boxer tournament. And I thought, and at the time I trained twice a week at my local club, and occasionally for England in Crystal Palace. And now it's confidence to make me think, I could do this. And that reinforcement of what you spoke about was just it's so important, isn't it? It's so important. And it's, uh, that's really, it's amazing to hear you say that. It really is. Did you know the effect when you came back to Ireland, you stopped off the plane, you were a star? Did you think that was going to happen? Did you, what, like, what drove you? No, no. I'm just recently, geez, I would have been 21, you know, the month previously. Um, I'm still just a kid living at home and having I'm 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 just having a great time. I had a big night on the the night of the the um of the game and um and so I'm a bit worse for wear the next day. And when when I arrive back in all these TV camera crews and I'm asked I'm being asked questions that I like I wouldn't have the answers to at the best of times. Throw in, you know, God knows how many drinks on top of it, and my brain mushed. I just I was like, oh my God, I don't know, I don't know how to deal with this. And so, um, and then there was a, there was one other thing that I went to at one of my old school, you know, my old school um, cup matches, those really important cup matches um, that I was talking about earlier. And and I came in a little bit late to one of them. It was in the old Lansdowne Road, and as I walked across an empty stand to go over with the past pupils like the whole of the school stand poured out and came running over and like was looking for autographs and things. And I, that, for me, that moment, I was like, oh my God, this is so vastly different than anything that I could ever have, uh, have appreciated or anticipated. And I think that was the kind of real eureka moment of go of thinking, wow, things are, things are different. I'm, I'm maybe see, I'm seeing it a different light than I was, you know, three, four days earlier. And and do you know what? You got to love, you enjoy that. But there's growing up and, you know, being mindful of being in the public eye. And yeah, I made kind of silly mistake. God knows I had yellow hair for 18 months or two years. So, um, you know, you, you, you do, you, but you do, you grow up. I wasn't going to mention that. I made a note. I wasn't going to mention that. I was gonna... <laughs> I've got a checklist of all the crap stuff here too. So if you're not going to call it, I'm going to call it, right? <laughs> I... Can I just talk on that? The, the funny thing about the the the, the uh, blonde hair, if you would want to call it blonde, um, I it was it was at that time where you know I kind of missed my twenties and missed all the early twenties, and all my pals were going off to America in summer and you know doing all the parties and everything, and I was I I kind of felt as though you're a bit regimented in what you could and couldn't do and we had to be here and wear this and do that. And that was my two fingers up to the authorities to be able to go, <laughs> do you know what? You can't control my hair. I can do what I want. And I almost nearly enjoyed their annoyance at the Ireland captain at the time having this 
appalling hair. Like, if only I could have, you know, my 10 years older, look back. I get asked, what, what would you tell your young self? I'd be like, don't have yellow hair. <laughs> yeah, but that was, your, that was your William Wallace moment. I like that. You can have this, but you can't take my yellow hair. There was, the <laughs> thing is, there was different versions of it. So, like, actually... There was one in the, the 03 World Cup that I saw some footage and I had a bit of a tan down there as well. It'll shock you to, 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 to think that this skin can actually tan up a bit. But, I, but, but it can, but I actually had, it was a really good shade and it looked as though it was more sun in, you know, rather than, than going and getting highlights. Anyway, then it got progressively worse and worse and worse and I chased that sun in look and never oh, caught it again. Chasing the dragon. Never correct. Then record it again. <laughs> oh goodness! This podcast is all about getting back up and and, ta- and, and attacking adversity. From now, I'm looking in up to 21, scoring a, scoring a hat trick in in France. It looked like kind of things were kind of going really well for you. Like when when was the first time something like went bad and it got hard and it got <laughs> tough? Because when you've had the massive heights you've had, it's only natural to have huge lows as well. Yeah, but like also the Irish team at that time were massively inconsistent. You know, we, you know, I got I captained the team for the first time in in two thousand and two, and we happened to beat Australia for the first time in thirty years in what was one of the most uninspiring uh, international matches I've, I've ever played in. Hissed out of the heavens, um, and literally we were just less bad than them. Um, and so, and then and then we actually played pretty well the following year in the grand up in the Six Nations and, and had a Grand Slam game against England in in Lansdowne Road and um, and that was a, a big moment. You know, there was I don't know if you if you would have read this stuff where Martin Johnson took no backward step and our you know there was a red carpet out and they were aligned on our side and and so. I kind of, for the first time, I had to make a, a snapshot decision as a as a captain as to what we were going to do, because some of my teammates were like, "They're standing on our side, they're disrespecting us." So I was like, "They didn't even know we had a side," um, and this is for the anthems lined up, lined up for our president to come out and, and greet us. Anyway, so I said, "Okay, I can go in, stand in behind Martin Johnson and be dwarf him. No one will see me. I could stand in front of him and maybe get a dig in the head, or we can walk to the edge of the red carpet and get our president's." Uh, shoes dirty and so I decided to go for that option and so much was made of it the disrespect of Martin Johnson I, I respected him massively for not taking any backward step they'd just come off the back of three Six Nations losing the final game and losing the Grand Slam of three consecutive years so they they couldn't they had nowhere to go if they lost this game anyway they went out and, and beat us out the gate that day and so you know I, I know we're talking about adversity was trying to make decisions on the hoof when you're a young captain and you don't really know the right thing to do and you're trying to go with your gut and trying to understand, um, you know, and, and discover, you know, even who you are and what sort of leader you are and you're trying to ste- take different traits from from different leaders that you've appreciated over the course of your early years, even going back to school captains. Um, and so... Yeah, there's there's those small snapshot moments over the course of of your early captaincy that you kind of go, I, ho- I hope I'm doing this okay. I hope this is palatable by all those teammates. And um, but for me, at the core of everything, I was the the thing about my leadership was that I always knew whatever I lacked of being a gr- a good orator, orator, I always tried to make up for it and try to be the best player at training every single day. Try to be the best player. Try to impress and gain respect that way and. 
and then be the best player on a Saturday as well. And that was the foundation of what I built my leadership on was try to be the best performer and just leading by example. And that meant, you know, getting stuck in as much as enjoying the kind of fast, hard ground, ball playing stuff. But I really enjoyed the, the, the kind of more physical defensive side of the game because maybe there wasn't an expectation of a smaller guy to go and do that. But I, I found that a real challenge that I look forward to trying to get, get one over on. I had a whole section on leadership because that's something that impresses me the most. I'm fascinated about, as I said, you as the man rather than you as rugby player. And you've just basically said everything I was going to say in that in that one very succinct, well explained uh, paragraph. I'll give you one. I'll give you one quick one quick story. Remember, because I was working out who I was going to be as a leader, and, and so I'm back wearing glasses the last week. But I wore glasses for the first you know twenty five years of of my life, and um and so I remember the first ever captaincy um speech that I gave. I was petrified absolutely petrified in front of we do have these big black tie dinners anyway the comms team handed me my um my uh, speech and i went up and i put my glasses on they were like thick milk bottle you know glass glasses right and i read this speech out and i could only describe it as reading it as if english was my second or possibly my third language <laughs> right it was <laughs> Big one, big on the words. Beyond embarrassing, literally stuttering on words, and oh god, I actually am still, I'm, I'm kind of dying inside thinking about it. How many years later? Geez, twenty years later, right? So, um, so I remember going down. I got this really like embarrassing, not almost patronising. Well done, that was really good from my table. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to do this captaincy, I've got to do it my own way. And and sometimes you need those lessons about like embarrassing yourself to find that that doesn't work for me and that's definitely not going to work for everyone. So the next speech I went up, I was like, I'm not taking anyone's speech. I'm doing it my way. So when I spoke to a few people, um, I got I got Brian on my podcast. Ah, oh, I've had two questions: asking this, asking that, asking this, asking that. But the adversity, there's two major bits of adversity that alpha people looking in. And I'm sure you you know what I'm going to say. The spear mm-hmm. tackle, mm-hmm. um, the Lions, and being dropped in 2013. Being dropped in 2013, and obviously as the the, the the one tour that you went on four tours, the, the third man 125 years to have that accolade, and then you unfortunately lost the first three tours. You won the fourth tour, but the the deciding game you were dropped for that. Talk to me about that. It must be heartbreaking, mate. Like just sold the story. And that that's that's huge adversity. How did you come back from that? I think at the time, yeah, it is. I think um, you know, you you know, you um so the fir- the first one, the, the spear attack is the question that I'm I've been asked most in the last eighteen years. Um understandably. And yeah, I think, you know, lots of different factors, you know. I think the manner in which it was dealt with probably I should have been I should have been gone off the tour the next day it dragged on with me staying on tour so I think lots of factors worked against it you know being put to bed an awful lot earlier um but do you think you did the right thing by staying and cheering the boys no I didn't no 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 really I I I 100% the wrong thing actually in the next tour I got I got injured after the second test and uh, went home like a day or two later where I was like there's no place on tour for an injured player Irrespective of captain that? or otherwise, just so you're not adding any value. You know, you're 
you, you've got a completely different mindset. What are you actually bringing to the environment? It's so hard to say in, as connected into something when you're not, you, when you're not kidding, you're not uh, kidding out, even for training. You're not even it, like this, whatever about not playing, not even going training and not, you know, putting up um, being bag holders or you know, putting up a defense against to prepare the team for their their for the for the next game. Uh, and that was the thing in 2013, I think, was was the most challenging part. Obviously, the disappointment of not being selected first time in my career I'd, I'd ever been dropped um, and. And then knowing that I wouldn't have another Lions game, and I suppose it was a relief that we did win the series, of course, that superseded everything. But I didn't feel a part of that series win like like I would have if I was, even if I'd played two minutes, even if you'd been kitted um, and in the subs or, you know, had 30 seconds, at least you'd feel as though you're a part to play, a very small part at that. But, but when you're not, when you're in the stands, the reality is, you might be part of the squad, but the feeling is different. And and people that don't get that just can't don't don't appreciate the the energy of um a professional sport that you have to be a contributor to be to genuinely feel part of something. Um and but it was important for me to to kind of put on um a kind of a brave face and, and not allow my disappointment to to kind of be a thing. Um, and so I tried to make sure that I trained as well as I could that final week. I didn't, there was no going out on the piss. There was no, um, you know, um, kind of getting in the, getting out, get, getting in a hump and getting annoyed or showing you know, a negative side. I tried to actually, you know, do more analysis with the guys that were selected. Uh, I think the f- hardest part I found is I came down for, tra- for training on the Friday before the test match and it said on our whiteboard, non-23 are not needed at training today. And I was like, oh my God, they don't even want me to be a bag holder. I think that was the hardest part of it all. I even brought my gum shield to the game in case one of the lads pulled up in, with an injury in uh, before beforehand. I said, I can borrow everything else, but I can't borrow a gum shield. Um, um, but, but they came through and records victory against... Australia and it was the results that you know you would have hoped for but you would have hoped to be part of it and um and so yeah it was um it was a, a great disappointment but you know significantly lessened in the last 10 years because 10 years does that but yeah for the first for the yeah it is a healer right for the first six or nine months yeah definitely I carried an element yeah the dis- disappointment ar- around it I did an interview with a pal of mine and I, and I let my guard down because he was a pal afterwards and he, I kind of asked me a couple of leading questions. Do you resent Warren Gatland? And, and I probably should have straight batted them and I, and I probably was indulged a bit too much and, I, and I, maybe then I let myself down a little bit because I was a bit too honest. But, you know, you, you, you don't have a lot of love for someone that's not selected you, that has gone with somebody else. And people are like, oh, it's not about you. It doesn't, I, I'm not being asked, you know, would I prefer us to have lost? It's not what I'm at, I've been asked. It's, 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 a, it's a very personal thing about being included in something or not. It's nothing to do with, I'm not try, I was not trying to make, you know, the story about myself. I was asked a specific question about how I felt and you're just answering that honestly. And, but people don't get that. In uh, in boxing, the aim is to uh, render your opponent unconscious as quick as you possibly can. It's to hurt your opponent, to break his ribs, to 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 smash his will, so you win the fight. You want to hurt your opponent. In rugby, 
when you go for a tackle, do you want to hurt the person? Do you want to hurt them? Do you want to just want to? Yeah. Do you, what, what? What's the mentality when you go? And again, you say, well, fourteen stone going against Manny, sixteen and a half stone. What's your mentality when you want to hit him as hard as you possibly can? Yeah, I want to hurt them. Yeah, yeah. I want to. I want to leave my mark. I want them to know that there was a big shot that I didn't just. I didn't just kind of do my like I, 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 mediocrity of of a role never sat well. I wanted to do the role well, and and that meant big impact. I didn't necessarily go out to hurt people. I, I went out to make positive collisions, and positive collisions more often than not, if I if I could get them, if I could preempt someone seeing a, a tackle coming, or if I could move with the ball in hand. And, and catch someone off guard, carrying into contact. That positive collision meant it was a, a byproduct of that was that someone got hurt. But I was okay with that. That was that was ultimately at the core of what you were trying to do. Um, I'm not trying to get people off the field, but I want people to know that I've I've left my mark on them. That was definitely a a, a big component of what you were doing. Be it you know in attack or or particularly defense. And again, I go back to the defensive side of things because. Yeah, I might have been. I'd have been about fifteen stone towards the end of my career. Like a, comparatively to some of the units I would have played against, really, yeah, 21, 22 stone guys. You know, you really want to get your timing right. You want to make sure that you ca- yeah, you catch catch them when their eye line is off. Yeah, you need to, to preempt certain aspects um, to to make sure that you can at least make a neutral tackle, or if you're going to make a positive. Uh, impact or get a positive outcome, then you gotta you, you you've gotta be ahead of the game. I'd love to talk about the documentary because, as I said earlier, like what you made, I thought was a really like magical piece of of TV. Um, so you you came to my house last year, I think it was, and we spoke about. Oh, you tell me about after the war, BT Sport after the war. What was that about? Um, I I think it was about like after the roar of of professional sport in men. We focused on because of the. Um, the crisis in men's mental health under 50. Um, you know, it's the biggest killer in men under 50, which is a frightening statistic. Unbelievable, unbelievably shocking. And our unwillingness as a gender to to talk about our feelings, to express ourselves, to bottle things up. And I suppose I saw my own experience coming out of professional sport and the journey that I kind of went on for the first five or six years to then get to a point of comfort of being able to verbalize that and express myself and try and find a commonality with the likes of you and AP McCoy and Gareth Southgate and some of the contributors, Johnny Barristow, some of these contributors that, you know, that had very similar feelings. Um, we all had kind of different journeys at different um, endpoints or in Johnny's case, he's still going. Um, so, but to to, yeah, I suppose to be able to show that vulnerability is okay to be honest and, and apparent and open about how you felt um, that, you know, that for me, retirement hadn't been a cakewalk, albeit visually, you know, from the outside looking in, I was doing lots of things, but it wasn't what I had experienced for the previous 15 years. And so to, so to do a piece of, um, of TV around letting it be known that it's okay to show vulnerability. It's okay to not have all the answers. Okay. To feel as though you have lousy days and that you, you're not sure about what, where your, what your direction is. 
Um, and I think by hearing people that have achieved very high things talking about those aspects, I think it, people are able to resonate at home. Lots of people, you know, exports, men and women contacted me, but more importantly, you know, men on the street, people that have gone through transitions, through loss of a loved one or loss of a career or, or, or a breakup of a relationship or uncertainty, um, to, for them to kind of feel as though they had a commonality with our emotions and our experience is it, it, yeah, there's a comfort that comes with that. I certainly got a comfort in talking to you guys and feeling I wasn't this lunatic out there that was just feeling these emotions on his own. And, and I think sometimes, and you look at the likes of AP McCoy, who's, who's achieved everything you'll like, no one, certainly not in our lifetime will ever come close to matching what he's done. But in many ways coming from that height down is worse rather than necessarily, you know, getting to achieve. It's subjective, I suppose, uh, depending on your circumstance, but, that that landing is 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 it's further to fall um so it's um and i, I yeah you know, it's subsequently i've talked to you know a number of kind of very high profile rugby players that have retired in the last you know three four years and all of them felt have felt the same emotion even guys that have won world cups have achieved everything in the game it's just not the same and but i think everyone has to go through that mourning period and i was only able to do it when i kind of came out the other other side of a say a fog or a haze but just a an understanding that you know separation from the game allowed me to get a better perspective as to where i was time again time time, time, heals time. And it takes is. time it to, is for sure takes time to to what's your take what's your take on um okay so you're a great example of perhaps not being able to fulfill your full potential because of injury so do you think that you know in your do you think of course, you should feel harder done by, but do you think that the landing coming from that, from maybe not getting to the high point that you wanted to get to, is more is 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 more difficult than someone like AP McCoy having reached the very pinnacle? So I'll be really honest with you, mate. The reason why I loved your film you made after the war is because it opened my eyes up a lot. For example, you asked me that question. I was a little bit pissed off, actually, initially, when I was watching it. I was thinking, turns in AP McCoy's bit. Pissed off is wrong. Pissed off is the wrong, wrong, wrong term. Um, I felt something. I couldn't I couldn't figure out because here's a guy that's won everything. And even you, to a degree, you've done everything. Right? You've done, regarded as one of the greatest ever in, in, in your sport. AP McCoy regarded the greatest ever. He's done it. And I'm thinking, why are you upset? Like, what have you got to be upset about? Because you've done everything you wanted to do. And here's me on my sofa watching with tears in my eyes. And on the film, we showed a little, little footage from my first fight. When I was 12 years old, I knocked the guy out when I was 12 years old. And we showed pictures of me in the Olympic Games and this and this. And I never got to do it. And I had to sit and watch snips from the fight where my eye got really bad. And I'm, I'm throwing and I'm missing by six feet. And I'm getting hit by a guy that could not lace my gloves. It broke my heart because I never got to become even a British champion, let alone European or world champion, when people that I've beaten and could not lace my gloves and become world champions. So I found it really, really, really hard when he began talking. Then he was talking more. And then he was talking more. And then he was talking more. And I'm thinking, oh, I get it, actually. I do get it. 
there's me thinking, oh, whoa, me, I never got the chance to do it. But I do understand. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think he still has these memories of being the number one and achieving his dreams. I never got to do that. But I understand exactly why you felt such sadness when you had to retire. And I understand why A.P. McCoy feels such sadness he had to retire because when you're synonymous with being the best, you're not the best anymore. And I've, the free, I, I first met you at uh, Battersea Park at the B, at the, uh, the Sports Industry Awards 2014. And I was, nom- well, my team was nominated for, um, I haven't been back since, I'm still frustrated by this. I didn't win. My team nominated me for, uh, I think, Management of the Year Award, for example. I went from a little kid from Lower Staff who nobody knew about to after the games, I was the most sponsored athlete in bo- sponsored boxer in the world, Subway, Nike, Maxi Muscle, Dunk. Coca-Cola and they're doing a wonderful job with me um, and we lost to some of a, we lost to somebody uh, as a frustrating I should have won and I haven't been back I haven't been back since however the best part of that day is you won the Outstanding Contribution to Sport Award prize and and I knew who you were of course but I wasn't a huge rugby fan growing up because it's not I just wasn't exposed to it that much I've become a big fan the last 10 years and I saw you he's like you were like God mate honestly this whole tent just in awe of this man and when you came to my to my house last year I was surprised and I mean this in the nicest possible way you were smaller than I remember because and I, and I say this in a nice way because you have on that on, in 2014 when I saw you we kind of half met briefly you had this aura where you kind of glided down to the stage and ev- honestly, mate, it was like God had arrived and everyone was so proud of you and your achievements. And you had this massive aura, which I thought, wow, what a man. Like, what a man. And when you came, obviously, I thought, him. I know, you know, you know, you know, you know, But it was just, I was just blown away. And yeah, mate, I was just, just blown away by, by you and what you've achieved. And initially, I found it difficult thinking that why why would you feel sad but i get it now well, I, I'm, I do get it. A, I'm different to ap right because i i look back on the things that i didn't win right you know no world cup okay grant you know ireland have never been to a world cup semi-final but even even that about goals of going one before those that have gone before you know gone before you um so none of that um you know no no Lions victory when I was ultimately playing. Um, and then the other missed opportunities on Grand Slams and other things. Yeah, I was lucky that, you know, I did ultimately get to achieve those things. We won European Cups, you know, towards the end. But it's, you know, it's not, I don't, you don't, you know, sit back and 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 shine up the medals you've won. It's you, you focus, I for me, I focus on and look back on the things that I didn't get to achieve. And, and so that's my point around, understanding AP's prerogative where he how far he has come from being that picture boy for 20 years to not getting to do something and I and I it's 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 hard I, I think it's necess- maybe just different right that you, and you can't compare one situation to another about someone not being able to achieve where they felt they could go versus someone that absolutely has but now you know, should feel sorry for themselves. I, I get both sides and, and maybe it's unfair to 
to to grade one you know harder than the other but it's it's even seeing the different perspectives and prerogatives of you know Garrett Southgate talking about not not missing football I was like how I was like how do you not miss playing football like playing your sport is we were we were all you know we grew up on it we loved it it's not it wasn't work it didn't it never felt like work for me um so it's yeah i just i just think it's a really interesting concept as to who you know different people's emotions around what where they've been and what they've done and what they've missed out on be it you know as an athlete or then subsequently after their their athlete prowess i 100% agree and going back to the documentary you spoke about people and at the very beginning you said about getting knocked down and getting back up and not showing weakness. And that's how I think it can be great for sport, but bad for health and, and, and mental health in particular, because I think it's, you know, it's, and I've heard you say in an interview, people, it's never going to change. A box is never going to come out and say, I'm scared of this fight. They're not going to do that. Rugby players aren't going to come out and say, oh, my opposite number is big and he's strong and I'm scared to go in the tackle. It's just not going to happen. But how do we find this, this thing, and I think it's very important for people like us, a post-career, to talk about certain things. And there's a quote, my acting coach, Richard Corgan, who's a wonderful, wonderful man, said this to me recently. He said to me uh, uh, in Macbeth, uh, so in Macbeth, Macbeth's, Macbeth has Macduff's family killed, right? And then Malcolm says to, said to Macduff, he said, you must dispute it like a man, i.e. you must go back and kill him and kill all his friends and family. And then, and then, Macduff says, I will, but I for, what do you say? I will, but um, I shall do, but I must also feel it as a man. And that was 500 years ago. Shakespeare's talking about men being able to feel it. And manhood comprises more than aggression and murder. Allowing oneself to be sensitive and feel grief is also necessary. And I think it's important, it's so important for men to, to, to feel that grief and, and talk about it and show vulnerability because that's that you said earlier, the suicide under the age of 50 in the UK and Ireland is the, is the biggest killer. That's shocking and disgusting and, um, yeah, and that, uh, that, I mean, that has to change. That has to change. Yeah, it, it's like I, I um, you know, I've been personally impacted by it too you know I had, a, I had a friend of mine back in 2008 a really good pal of mine who out of nowhere you know took took his own life um and so yeah I, I understand I'm so sorry mate sorry to hear that by the way yeah and listen and it's funny it's, it's I kind of really talked about it that much over the course as well the last thing I wanted to be was a spokesperson for for his family and, and you know, while they're grieving. And so I kind of, I never talked about it. Um, but it's, it, you know, I think in situations where you never saw it coming, he was the life and soul of every party. He was literally the go-to guy. If you want to have a good time, have a laugh. He was your guy and, and never even the chink in the armory of negativity. And I think that's what made it all the, nothing's ever palatable in that regard, but it went all the more shocking when you have, you know, someone that, is as vivacious as he was and, and and having a lust for life, but then, you know, in a snapshot in a moment of madness and it looks as though he, he ended up taking his own life. So I think, yeah. Tears of a clown, isn't it? It's tears of people, you know, it's, 
you, you just yeah. But usually, the, you know, there's this. They subside in some shape or form. They show the vulnerability to a loved one or or something to to totally internalize anything or 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 everything, and for for never to show any form of weakness at any time in front of any loved one. I think is. It's scary, right? It's scary that someone can do that. And so that's why even in those people that you think are the lifeblood of every party and that are the, the that go-to person, the, you know, the, the, the life and soul, they have to be asked. They have to, you know, you have to get close, closer to them. You have to ask, genuinely ask them. And sometimes ask them a few times, everything okay, how are you doing? And, and, and show a compassion and an empathy for even the smallest stuff, because sometimes it can be the smallest things that trigger these, you know, crazy thoughts. And, and, and so, so a bit of discussion, a bit of conversation, a bit of communication between close friends to show that you are empathetic, that you are in a position to be able to help out. And do you know what? Maybe you give some of yourself to that individual as well. And it works vice versa. Um, but I think it's so important. We talked the whole time about the need for you know, men to talk a lot more and to, to kind of get rid of the bravado of, of, you know, of coming from the career of lying about how I was, you know, about, you know, how are you feeling? Doctor asks you, I'm great. I'm great. You know, I'm 75%, but I don't want to miss out the jersey at the weekend. I'll be fine. Adrenaline will get me to 85%. My 85% is good enough. Um, and so constantly convincing yourself and then all of a sudden you leave that can't live your life with those emotions, you know, mentally, whatever about physically, mentally, you can't live that way. And so it's trying to, um, trying to kind of break down something, a component that has been built up on you over a period of time. And so that's why, and then now you throw in as well, you throw in social media and others, um, you know, other aspects, other, um, you know, other negatives that reinforce that, that negativity or, 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 or compound that negativity. I think it makes it all the more important that we really need as a gender, in particular men, to, to talk and, and express ourselves a little bit more. And if the film was, was there to be able to do that, I think that will, you know, if it, if it landed on a couple of people and made a difference to them, well, that was worth all the effort tenfold. Definitely, definitely. And if people can see... A great, and I'm, 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 there's, there's no jokes in this. I'm being deadly serious. If people can see a, a great man like yourself, a leader of men, a strong man, a resilient man, a man that's gone to battle over and over again, and has picked himself up and come back from injuries and other like emotional setbacks, be open and talk about his problems and his issues. Then hopefully that'll give other people the inspiration to do the same as well. So well done, mate. I think you should give yourself a big pat on the back for, for that and for making that film. Is it was a tremendous uh, piece of filming. BT Sport after the war. Um, to wrap up, so I know, you know you're a very, very busy man. You've got things to do. Um, a question for me, actually, out of intrigue. Um, and then if anything else, anything else you want to say, feel free to, to say what you want to say. But like uh, you and your wife, um, she is arguably the greatest pumpkin carver as well in the world, by the way. I'm always <laughs> astounded by her pumpkin carvings. Each do, you know what? do you know what? I'm going to say Sarah across the road is better. That, right, Sarah, that, Sarah, that. Sarah across the road, right? That's where 
Amy, my wife, Amy, we moved into this house um, about three years ago and the first Halloween we came in and we saw Sarah and John's house, we were flabbergasted, right? <laughs> there must have been about 25 pumpkins on their steps. They're, they're old buildings, so they're, they're steps leading up to, um, to kind of the front door that you don't really use. And, and so, like, it's or, ornamental. And, but they, then she had these all lit on Halloween night. Oh, my God, it was amazing. So she, that's where if she, she took inspiration from. And my wife is a, you know, she wouldn't like to be out creative. So I'm sure if you got up close and saw the detail of my wife's pumpkins, I'm sure that they'd stand up to most people. But I have to say, Sarah is, was the catalyst. Yeah, she was the um, Well, she thank the you, catalyst. Sarah. Thank you. How, how have you, and the last question I'll ask you, um, and it's more of a personal thing. How have you, though, Amy is a very successful um, artist herself as, as an actress, actor. Uh, you're obviously who, who you are. Oftentimes in relationships, it's hard to be, it's hard to have a leading man and a leading woman, right? Oftentimes leading man and a supporting woman and or, or vice versa, leading woman in into general, general sense. You two seem very happy on the outside and obviously it's the Instagram thing, but like you seem very happy. You've got three beautiful kids. You both seem like your leading man to the leading woman in, in life. How have you, so I've struggled with this. I've struggled in my relationship in the past for like wanting, not wanting to share, you know, wanting to share the spotlight in, in, in a, if, you know, how have you two done it? How have you been able to maintain a successful relationship when you're both leaders in your own right? It's a great question. It really is. And it's, I think it's, it's not necessarily something that we have to openly talk about, but I think we have to internalize each, both of us where, you know, there's two of us in it. We're in a partnership and all, all the more so when I retired, you know, I think yet there had to be a certain element of selfishness to what I was doing when I was playing. But then when I finished up, you know, I think it was so important that, that my missus had a really good crack of what she was doing. Her career was on the up. Um, and, and so there's, there's massive balancing to be done and there's, um, and finding, um, yeah, finding common ground and, um, what's the best word for it? You know, yeah. Trying to, uh, um, yeah, I don't think you could do everything that you want to do. I think you have to find compromise. You have to not do all of the things that you want um, even though it might suit you, it might feel as though it will better you as an individual, even financially. I think sometimes you have to go, do you know what? I, I can't do that. I've got, and I'm more conscious of trying to make sure that one of us is, is at home the whole time. Um, this week, she, you know, she's been all filming all week. And so I've had to pull the handbrake up a little bit on some work stuff to make sure that I'm around to get my kids off to school and cook dinners when, um, when they, you know, they come home and doing homework and all of that stuff that she does an awful lot of the time too. So I think it's, it's trying to find a happy medium. We we're lucky that we get on really well and we take the absolute piss out of one another. And I think that is a big combat. I saw her do, say this in an interview recently that a big part of our relationship is taking the piss out of one another. And I would completely agree with that. But I think sometimes, you know, the ego in you does want to be able to go and do what you want to do yourself and completely, you know, have the other person, you be the 75 and the other person, the 25, but that's not how a good partnership works. That's not how a good marriage works. Um, 
I think sometimes you have to um, take the hit on your side to allow the other person to prosper and enhance themselves and do their thing. And I think we don't, you don't always nail the balance of that. You know, there's, you know, one or other of us gets frustrated one way or another, but I think it's, it's understanding that and having an appreciation of that. And that's not to say over the course of particularly the last eight years and the first four or five years of my retirement, I would say I was challenging. You know, I, I, you know, I'm not saying it was a better rose as far from us. She was really challenging for her, particularly, I'd say at times as I was coming to deal with my next iteration of who I was, I was trying to discover that. And, and I think that, you know, makes her an incredibly patient person and someone that has a huge amount of empathy. Um, and she's more empathy than I do. I'm, I'm working on mine. Um, but she, yeah, but I think it's, it's a work in progress always. Um, but it's a really good question because you're right. I think, you know, the, where you're, where you're very passionate about your careers and, um, and you, you get so much from it, um, and you want, you need to drive at a hundred miles an hour and you need to fully focus on yourself. But in a, in a kind of a union that's not allowed, you know, you, you're never going to fully necessarily achieve everything you want to, if you want to have a successful marriage, if you want to have a successful relationship. So at times of, you have to pull the handbrake up and you got to do things that, you know, you don't want to do. I was, I, was on a, I was on a Zoom call yesterday. I had to turn the camera off because I had to change a shitty nappy <laughs> on my, um, on my, on my, the babies. I was on mute and then camera. Let me just say, it was, it was your babies. It wasn't yours. No, it wasn't my, it wasn't oh, my you. wife's. It wasn't my <laughs> wife's. <laughs> no, she got out of them last year. Um, no, so like, I, yeah, so I'm I like, that and I'm kind of laughing to myself. I'm listening away, and there's that all going on, and it's and but like everyone's doing that. Um, but yet, I don't know. You're. I'm trying not to be impatient. I'm trying not to be stressed at not being able to do all the things that I know need doing while she's away, and to make sure we're really lucky. We've got a really great childminder that lives in with us as well so you know I'm not. If this isn't little violins coming out, out but, but you want to be your parent too. I don't want. My kids to be brought up by the child minder. I still want to be want to be the focal point and the main person and the go to. So, but it's it is difficult at times trying to strike the balance. And I don't think we'll ever have the perfect answer to it. But compromise is such a huge component in in kind of the success of two people that are very career orientated as well as you know enjoy their family life. Well, that made that for me. Listen, that was pretty much a perfect answer. Something I wish I'd have heard a few years ago, especially when I retired from my career. Because when I retired from boxing, I've been nothing short of a pain in the ass to be around. And yeah, that was great advice. Why did you tell me that in 2019? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if I had it then. I, I listen, and I, I'm retired eight years, and 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 I'm and I I would say, you know. I'd say in the last the last three years in particular, I, our relationship has gone to another level um, of because I think there's understanding and 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 knowing what that give and take is, um, and and trying to find the commonality that that works for both of us to to strike the balance and and then even learning more about one another if you are if i am away an awful lot to make sure that then if, if i'm working weekends make sure i'm locking stuff in and going out for lunch together and having dinner together and watching a series at the end of the day even if your days are jammed and you're 
you, you've got a lot on your plate and you need to work at night. But what's an hour sitting down and watching a series together? That stuff is important to being, even though you mightn't be talking through it, but just being in each other's company, that stuff really counts when, you know, during really busy times. I think we're still discovering all of that stuff, but it's, but it's, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great starting point that we still like each other a lot. As well as being a world-class um, rugby player, mate, you're a world-class human being. Um, I'll say thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Is there anything else? And also, you're, you're, no, how candid you've been and, and your humility as well. It's, it's, I've really enjoyed just being in your presence via, via Zoom for the last hour and a half. Um, is I really enjoyed our time. I enjoyed our time. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting a lift in that gym of yours at some point and getting 100%. absolutely punished. But... Um, no, but it's. I, I think it's really important to talk with them, um, talk about this stuff, about the freedom, about not everything not being one hundred percent perfect. No one does. Those that say they are are bullshitters. So it's about trying to find, you know, the next version of 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 that what it might look like. Um, I, I know that there's two. I know that the, that you work on kind of quotes from people. There's two that I that I work from. One now and one as a player, and the player one is is easy and, and I I talked to touch on a little bit from a, a captaincy point of view. Um um a, a piece of advice that I got from early on is you can't expect to turn it on on a Saturday afternoon if you don't do it during the week. So for me it was tr- as tra- train as you're gonna play. I was I was in. I was in. There was no I find it very difficult doing kind of twenty percent contact or thirty percent contact or it was because I was like, I needed to prep myself for how it was going to be on a Saturday afternoon. Because if I was training with that level of intensity, because then you add the adrenaline and the big day, you know, atmosphere and everything, that's another 10% that you're going to get anyway. So your natural performance is going to be elevated, but don't expect, don't train at 90% and expect that to come. So for me, it was about training with, with so much competitiveness and ferocity. And then the second one I got from a fitness coach that's actually still working with the Irish rugby team at the moment, a guy called Jason Cowman. And um, and you talk about, you know, disappointment of leaving a career and, um, and going into something else that maybe doesn't have the same impact. But he said to me, one thing to try and live by is to always feel that your best years are ahead of you. If you think and dwell that your best years are behind you, well, you'll believe that because you don't know what's coming. And if you, if, you, if you live life with an open mind and with an appreciation for what's going on around you and all, some of the small stuff, which I definitely have more of a, an enjoyment and seeing all the firsts with, you know, with my toddler and seeing my, my kids enjoy all of that stuff like that is, that's real living. And so for me, trying to capture and enjoy that, you know, that, you don't have to compare it to the big victories against England or against other teams, but it's, it's significant. And I think if you got to be open-minded that, that things will be good and, um, and that positivity will generate more positivity. Wow, I thought that was a great chat, a great conversation with a great man. A couple of things stood out for me. Um, so Brian, obviously you got dropped as a, as a kid from a school team. And I got me thinking how many people stopped then how many people how many Brian O'Driscolls could there have been if they got back up how many Michael Jordans could there have been he also got dropped from the school team got me thinking like how many greats there could have been in a the world have only they had the the 
the whatever it is, the strength of character is going to keep on going. So I'm really proud of Ryan for never giving up when he got dropped as a kid and for overcoming all those hurdles that he he suffered. I urge you all to watch um, After the War, the documentary that Brian made that I was going to be on, uh, the BT Sport documentary, tried to find it after the war. It's a really amazing film that Brian made. And yeah, just try to give it a watch if you possibly can. He said, 10 minutes into the conversation, he said, Jesus, there's nothing like resilience being built when you have the option of staying down. That's the thing. I think we all have the option of staying down. When we get knocked down in life, we've got an option. We can stay down, we can get back up. And the more you get back up, the more you build resilience. The more resilience you build, I think the better life you have because you're you're more hardened to, to the small things. The thing that he said that stuck with me the most, he said, always feel like your best years are ahead of you. And I love that. No matter what you've done in your life, always be positive and feel like your best years are ahead of you because positivity breeds positivity. Brian, thank you so much again, mate, for coming on the podcast. You are a true, true legend. Bobby, well on. The Getting Back Up podcast rolls on to next week. Next week, I'm talking to a man called Callum Knight. Callum Knight is better known from his gaming moniker, CPK. Callum is a three-time Guinness world record holder. He's such a nice guy. He's so inspirational. He's a young man living his, living his best life, but he suffered more adversity as a teenager than most should have to ever face in their life. Callum lost his mum to breast cancer when he was just 17 years old. He had to raise his own sister, almost as his own child. And he came through all those all those struggles and setbacks to have an amazing career. And he's now living his best life, as I said. So please tune in next week to listen to Callum Knight, CPK, talk about his life and his career. It's truly inspiring. And remember, in life, when you get knocked down, you've got one option. Always get back up. <laughs>